Hello, it's Robin Upsall, politics reporter at the Des Moines Register. Welcome back to Three Tickets. When I picture the Iowa caucuses, I think of candidates making their pitch at events, standing in a living room in Des Moines or on the Register's little soapbox stage at the Iowa State Fair. But political experts know that running a months-long campaign in Iowa is way more than just shaking hands and kissing babies. In this episode, Jason Noble talks to two candidates from the 1980s, Walter Mondale and Bob Dole. Neither won the presidency, but both won their party's caucus. People like Bob Dole and their Iowa caucus stories can tell us a lot about what candidates face on the Iowa campaign trail today. Anyway, here's Jason Noble from 2015. The Iowa caucuses are a uniquely American political process. An authentic exercise of grassroots politics, a stunningly complex organizational enterprise, a long-running and dynamic news story, and an expensive investment of time and money. But above and beyond all that, they're an inescapably human effort. A caucus campaign, and a presidential campaign more broadly, rises and falls on the drive, the energy, the character, talent, and good fortune of one intensely scrutinized candidate. Consider John Edwards, a talented, magnetic politician who by all accounts wrecked himself on his hubris, entitlement, and infidelity. Or take Mitt Romney. He did everything a textbook on presidential campaigning might tell you to do, but he fell short again and again in Iowa and beyond because he lacked political intangibles, like an ability to connect with audiences or demonstrate empathy. The candidate, the living, breathing human being around which an Iowa caucus's campaign is built, is our subject in this episode of Three Tickets, the Des Moines Register's podcast of Iowa caucus's history and culture. In this series, we're meeting the people and hearing the stories behind Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses, the pretty amazing but sort of absurd political contests that have inaugurated the presidential nominating process for the last five decades. I'm Jason Noble. Coming up next on C-SPAN, we take you live to Iowa. Iowa. (laughs) Hello, Iowa. In the state of Iowa. I'm back. I love Iowa a whole lot. Tomorrow, Iowa. If we're going to explore the Iowa caucuses from the candidates' perspective, I suppose it makes sense to start with arguably the most successful of all caucus candidates, the only guy to win two caucuses without the benefit of incumbents. Hi there. I have an appointment with Senator Dole, Jason Noble. The law offices of Alston and Byrd are located in a low-rise office building literally around the corner from Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. That's where I went to meet Bob Dole. So, Robert J. Dole of Russell, Kansas. He's a World War II veteran who lost the use of his right arm under fire in Italy. He was elected five times to the U.S. Senate from Kansas, and he ran three times for President of the United States. Well, 
let's say I gave it a little try on 80, but yeah. I didn't really run. Mm -hmm. Okay, Senator. After giving it a little try, Dole actually ran for president twice, in 1988 and 1996. He won the Iowa caucuses in both of those years, and he was the Republican challenger to Bill Clinton in 1996. In Republican politics, Dole had a reputation as a hatchet man. In the Senate, he was a dealmaker. On the campaign trail, the press loved his acerbic sense of humor. He was, in short, a consummate politician. And he still was when he walked through the door that day in May. You're a Kansas guy. That's right. Grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. Your mother's still there, according to Marion, right? That's right, she is. Which just goes to show that almost 20 years out of office, Dole still understands the importance of constituent service. It's right up there with flattering the media. Yeah, I'm trying to think of... The political writer that I used to talk to a lot at the register. David Yepsen? Oh, yeah, where is he? He is at a university in southern Illinois now. He directs the Paul Simon Public oh, Policy Institute there. Yeah, he was a great reporter. Yeah. Very fair and kept you on your toes. Yeah. Well, I'll be sure to let him know that. Oh, yeah, tell him I miss him. <laughs> After we got through the pleasantries, I, I asked Dole what he remembers about his Iowa experience, and how he approached the caucuses as a political contest. We knew initially we just had to work. You know, there are 99 counties in Iowa, and you needed to have an organization of Dole supporters who would go to the caucus because it's generally cold or snowy or whatever, and you had had real committed people. And so I spent as much time as I could in Iowa, probably not enough in New Hampshire, but anyway, uh, made a lot of friends, met a lot of great people, and uh, it paid off. I mean, just work, work, work. When you get there, you go to work. And Running his Iowa operation was a guy named Tom Seinhorst, a native Iowan who knew the lay of the land. The strategy was pretty simple. Get on the road, find supporters, and lock them down. Well, where I'd go first is to find a chairman. Yeah. And Tom Seinhorst knew in almost every county who strong Republicans were. And I would make a personal call on that person, and then he or she would round up some other potential Dole supporters. And we'd try to get together and I'd visit and, you know, just whatever questions came up, I'd try to answer. But, you know, Iowa is, that's a tough state. I mean, you know, it's... you got to cover a lot of ground. you got to cover those 99 counties and my wife... I asked him what it meant being from Kansas, which is not a next-door neighbor to Iowa, but which shares quite a bit in common as a wide, flat agricultural state. It was undoubtedly a built-in advantage for his campaign. Oh, it became clear pretty quickly. I mean, he knew, at least I knew, being from Kansas, that I might have an opportunity in Iowa since we were so close and agriculture was a big thing in both states. And I'd been on the Ag Committee 
and I was a good friend of Chuck Grassley. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, it just seemed to me that I better get out there and go to work, which I did. Aha, uh -huh. now this is key. There's a rich history of Midwesterners succeeding in Iowa. Just ask Walter Mondale, Dick Gephardt, Barack Obama, even George McGovern. But Dole had the added advantage of a deep, authentic friendship with perhaps the most beloved man in Iowa politics, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. One old guy Republican I talked to in Des Moines told me that Dole taught Grassley, who was elected to the Senate in 1980, how to be a United States Senator. I asked Dole about that. Now, Chuck's my best friend, so, you know, we just happened to strike up a friendship, and, and uh, I don't think I taught him how to be a senator. I've always said, even with other senators around, that the hardest working senator that I knew in my 28 years was Senator Grassley. I mean, he that friendship was well established by 1987, when Dole's campaign was underway and he was camping out in Iowa ahead of the caucuses. Photos from the Register's archive show the two senators out on the road together, touring high schools. We've got photos of Dole at an Iowa Dairy Queen, and although I can't verify it, I'm almost certain Grassley was there with him, given Grassley's on-the-record weakness for Dairy Queen. Grassley formally endorsed Dole's candidacy, a blatant thumb-on-the-scale move that's fairly unusual for statewide office holders in the caucuses. And like the 800-pound gorilla. Because <laughs> yeah, so, everybody, you know, even Democrats respect Grassley mm -hmm. because he works hard and he does constituent service. So, yeah, with him on my side and Barbara, his wife, who's a pretty good worker too, and his press secretary who joined my campaign, uh, you know, we, it was a big help. Yeah. Grassley, too, speaks fondly of Dole. I went out on the road with the senator and asked him about the bond they built in the Senate and on the caucus campaign trail. You know, I he remembered about, campaigning with Dole uh, during the 96 I a, campaign. I, my job was to introduce Dole. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, this would have been in the 96 okay. caucuses. Uh, and I went to a lot of different counties with him. And I had some story about uh, uh, his heroism in, in Italy. And it was uh, something about uh, uh, how he raced up Hill 15, you know. And invariably I'd get all the numbers wrong or get it wrong. And, and he'd have to straighten it out, you know. And uh, because, you know, he was lucky to be alive yeah, when he absolutely. was hit, you know. And, Almost uh, 20 years later, Grassley still doesn't have the hill right. Like hill 913. Yeah, and so you'd always have to come up and correct him after yeah. he introduced you. You get the wrong hill. <laughs> well, we are in the right state, so that's all right. Now, he was a big, big help. I mean, Grassley... Observers, even those at a pretty distant know. remove, saw manifestations of Dole and Grassley's friendship. In our last episode, I talked Iowa caucuses' process and controversy with former Iowa Democratic Party Chairman Dave Nagel. Well, Nagel was a congressman during the 88 cycle when he picked up this story, Here's which he told story. me he's never shared publicly before. Bubble, but I, I was in Marshalltown in 88, 
and it was the 100th anniversary of the uh, Marshalltown Veterans Home. Mm-hmm. And had a parade and celebration, and, and President Bush came, gave the speech. This was actually the fall of 87, when Bush and Dole were running against each other in the caucuses. And it happened to fall on the same day that Grassley endorsed Dole for president. So we're standing there on the podium looking at the parade. And I've been asked to introduce Vice President Bush because Grassley refused to do so. Yeah, Grassley is at an event with the vice president from his own party and refuses to introduce him. So... I'm sitting there with the vice president, and Grassley's on the other side of me, and Bush leans over to me and says, look, isn't that chicken shit? He won't even speak to me. <laughs> so I introduced so I introduced the vice president, and, and they were very nervous because I was a Democrat, and he was a, you know, he was a Republican, but he said he was the vice president of the United States. He wasn't there in a political context, so I gave him a straight introduction. So <laughs> when we're done with the introduction, Bush in his speech keeps, men- keeps mentioning, your fine congressman knows. <laughs> and he says that about four times. And we're getting off the stage. Uh, Mrs. Bush uh, walks over, puts her hand on my arm, and she says, it's nice to see there's a little class in this state. <laughs> Grassley snubbed his own vice president out of loyalty to his friend Bob Dole. Here's another story from the 96 campaign from longtime Radio Iowa reporter Kay Henderson. But on the night of the nomination in the suite in which Dole is sitting with his aides and his family and whatever to await that moment when he crossed the threshold and won the nomination from the delegates on the floor, um, he asked Grassley to sit by him on the couch. And then his wife had been giving a speech, I believe, that night. So she came in, Elizabeth Dole, yeah. that would be, came in the room later, and, a, and an aide bent over the couch and said, Senator Grassley, could you move so uh, uh, Mrs. Dole may sit down? And Bob Dole said, no, he's sitting right here because he's the reason I'm here. Now, the story of Dole and the Iowa caucuses is actually two distinct stories separated by eight years, 1988 and 1996. Each has their own contours and idiosyncrasies, even as they both end with Dole victorious. If you ask Dole now, he'll tell you it was 1988, not 96, when he was actually nominated. That should have been his year. Yeah, that was the year I should have been nominated. I think I was better organized, and I had a lot of committed people, uh, and I don't think in 88 we had any rich people like Steve Forbes out there drawing those TV ads 50 times a day or whatever. And The thing that ultimately uh, threw Dole off his game was evident as far back as September of 1987 at the Republican Party of Iowa's Ames Straw Poll. It was the rise of the evangelical and social conservative movement within the party, a development we'll devote an entire episode to later on in this series. The Straw Poll, known that year as the Cavalcade of Stars, was the first organizational test for the presidential campaigns and the first milestone in the caucus horse race. It was significant because Bob Dole didn't win, and neither did George Bush, the guy seen as his biggest rival. Instead, the winner was Pat Robertson, 
the televangelist, who demonstrated for the first time the political passion and the organizational strength of social and religious conservatives. This was a pretty shocking development, but at the same time, it was just another interesting political story and a summer that was full of them. The Robert Bork Supreme Court nomination battle was gearing up at that same time, as were the revelations that Democratic candidate Joe Biden had plagiarized the life story of a British politician. In and of itself, Pat Robertson's victory wasn't seen as affecting Bob Dole very much at all. The Des Moines Register story the next day said of the result, quote, it was seen as a setback for Bush, period, end of sentence. Its significance became evident a little over four months later, though, on caucus night. Bob Dole won the 1988 Iowa caucuses, we had a but the night didn't quite go as expected. The problem was that Robertson finished second ahead of Bush, right. and he got all the press. I mean, I don't say all of it, but uh, I didn't get quite the momentum coming out of Iowa that I would have had if Bush finished second and right. Robertson third. But uh, Indeed. Bush won New Hampshire, and as the primary season wore on, the trappings of the vice presidency, which had actually hurt Bush in grassroots Iowa, became assets rather than liabilities. Dole dropped out in March, and Bush took the nomination and won the presidency. Dole ran again in 1996, and as so often has happened in Republican presidential politics, the second time was the charm. Iowa was still a battle, though. As Dole alluded to, his principal challenger that year was Steve Forbes, the wealthy publisher. In 96, it was a bit different because Steve Forbes had all the money. Right. And that was kind of a bitter, uh, as I remember. He took the campaign to TV. Oh, boy, almost killed me. Yeah. yeah, Forbes' strategy relied heavily on TV ads, pummeling the front-running dole. This was a pretty unusual approach at the time, since the universe of caucus participants is so small, and the cost of running statewide TV ads is so high. But those Forbes ads were inescapable in the final months before the caucuses, and many hit dole directly, criticizing his, quote, record of legislative compromise, and alleging that he had voted for 16 tax increases in 14 years. Well, he was really beating me up, though. Yeah. And uh, I can't remember all the things that were shown on TV, but but I think he and Buchanan, the two of them, uh, you know, made it tougher uh-huh. the second time around. Uh, because you know you can people who don't are not active in politics mm-hmm. uh, they can be swayed by a TV ad right. and they may get a picture of a candidate any candidate that's not accurate and if you don't identify yourself before your opponent identifies you, you're in trouble. That's right. The Buchanan that Dole just mentioned was Pat Buchanan, who ran to Dole's right, as Robertson had done eight years earlier. Still, though, Dole undoubtedly benefited from his previous candidacy and the Grassley connection, and he ultimately prevailed, albeit by a smaller margin. 
He lost New Hampshire again to Buchanan, but took the nomination and faced Bill Clinton in the fall. You know how that turned out. Dole answered all my questions and then stood for a few photos. I was right at then, like a practice poll, he wrapped things up. Okay, well, well tell your mother hello, maybe. I'll do that. Tell her to visit the Dole Institute. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. You see Grassley, tell him hello. I'll do that. To get the Democratic candidate perspective, I went to the office of another big law firm in another big city. I drove up to Minneapolis to meet another candidate with experience winning two Iowa caucuses, although in a slightly different capacity. Hi there, I have an appointment with Walter Mondale. Thank you. I kind of feel like Walter Mondale is a forgotten man of American politics. The guy was a U.S. Senator during the Civil Rights and Great Society era. He was an Iowa caucuses winner, a major party presidential nominee, and the Vice President of the United States. And yet, what do you know about Walter Mondale? I at least have the excuse that I was barely a year old when he lost 49 states to Ronald Reagan in 1984. Even more so than Dole, Mondale is one of those candidates who benefited politically from a pretty arbitrary geographic connection to Iowa. I get a kick out of uh, every candidate goes to Iowa, points out their rich roots there in Iowa, uh, some of them very tenuous. But one of my advantages was everybody knew that if you grew up on the Iowa line, as I did in Elmore, Minnesota, uh, we, we say one house was in Minnesota, the other was in Iowa. We were so, literally on the state line. Right, yes. And, and, uh, and uh, my friends were all Iowans and Minnesotans, and we, we shot pheasants together, and we grew up together. And so uh, one of the big advantages when I ran down there was that I didn't have to fake the connection. They understood it. David Jensen told me that uh, <laughs> you, you broke your nose in a basketball game and, and led your Ledger. Hey, did you? Yes, I did. You see it? He, um, we, we had what they called the Border League, and uh, four of the towns were, I think, Ledger, Lakota, Brainerd, I mean, uh, Bancroft, and one other town. But I, but I was playing, we were, these are all small towns. Elmore was all small town. And um, I was playing in Ledyard, and this guy busted my nose. And so I went bleeding through the rest of the game. <laughs> so I've given something to Iowa, too. <laughs> Beyond 1940s prep basketball, Mondale's political sphere also frequently bled into Iowa. He came up in Minnesota politics as a protege of Hubert Humphrey, was appointed state attorney general at the age of 32, and then he was appointed to the U.S. Senate in 1965 to fill the seat Humphrey vacated when he became Lyndon Johnson's vice president. Those statewide offices, as well as Iowa and Minnesota's common interest on agricultural issues, frequently brought Mondale across the border. Um, I was always being invited to give speeches down there. When they couldn't find a speaker they wanted, they'd invite old Mondale down there. So I, I, got, I got to know a lot of people down there. And, of course, the politicians, uh, senators and so on from the two states were natural friends and allies. We worked together and everything. 
Mondale played no role in Jimmy Carter's emergence as a viable candidate in the 1976 caucuses. He writes in his book that he was minding his own business in the Senate that year, and it wasn't until Carter had the nomination locked up and began searching for a running mate that he entered the fray. Carter asked him to be vice president. He accepted, and together they defeated Gerald Ford and running mate Bob Dole that November. It was a bumpy four years in the White House after that, and when they started looking at re-election, things weren't great. The U.S. economy was limping along, hobbled by high inflation and low economic growth that made life pretty tough for average Americans and all but ruled out any new policy initiatives. In early November 1979, 52 Americans were taken hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Iran. As you might expect, all that dimmed Carter's political prospects considerably. And to make matters worse, he was facing a challenge from inside his own party, from a Kennedy. On November 7th, Massachusetts Senator Edward Kennedy, younger brother of John and Bobby, formally entered the race, turning Iowa's caucuses into a competitive contest. Yes, and that, that was probably the biggest fight of all. Kennedy's very popular. Um, this was a big fight against a sitting president. Uh, Carter had been popular in Iowa. Kennedy was trying to challenge that. Um, uh, it was do or die for Kennedy, so they were down there intensely. And Carter was pinned down by the hostage crisis and felt it would be politically damaging to be seen campaigning while the hostages remained captive. It was, it was called the White House strategy or the Rose Garden strategy. He, he wanted to be engaged in ending the hostage crisis. But while he had a little time off, he'd call uh, Iowans on the precinct caucus list rolls. Calls from the White House go a long way. But being there is everything in Iowa. And so that meant much of the caucus's campaign fell to Mondale. And I was there, I would say, the better part of six weeks. Rosalind was there. Joan, my wife, was there. Um, we were trying to build the strength we needed to carry Iowa. It was a um, very intense battle. In Iowa and elsewhere, Mondale inevitably found himself tangling with Ted Kennedy. Ted and I, old friends, got into some fistfights, uh, verbal fistfights. Um, and I would say we were fairly civil toward each other, but it was a, it was a really tough battle. And um, um, I said some things about Ted that I regretted. I was tired, I went, and I called him the next morning to apologize. Um, he didn't elaborate on this in our interview, but he writes about it in his book. At an event in Iowa, Kennedy hit the Carter administration for ordering a grain embargo against the Soviet Union, a move that hurt American and Iowa farmers probably more than it hurt the Soviets. In a press conference, Mondale responded to Kennedy's comment by arguing the president was putting patriotism over politics and calling on Kennedy to support him, essentially impugning Ted Kennedy's patriotism. It was all permissible politics, but it was tense and uncomfortable for both of us. The irony was Mondale actually agreed with Kennedy's position on the embargo. But administration policy was administration policy, and he had to support it. It was an ugly contest all around. I imagine for Iowa Democrats, it was like watching your parents fight. 
your incumbent president battling your last Kennedy brother. On the campaign trail, Mondale and the Carter forces grinded away. The president had a deep well of support from his run in 76, and eventually those Iowans came home. And it was only the last couple of weeks that we started breaking out, breaking away. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, it was happening while I wasn't noticing it, because we were going to meetings with 10 people, 15, big crowd would be 20, you know, and going around the clock, maybe 16 hours a day, trying to pick up support, answer questions, and so on. And then suddenly I noticed we're getting 50, and then 100, and then 200. They, people, it was building, and the public was saying, I think, that we're ready to go and we want to go with Carter. And In the end, Carter's victory looked easy. He won 59% of the delegates. And although Kennedy kept up the fight to the convention, Carter's renomination was secure. Carter and Mondale faced Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush in the general election, and they lost. Almost immediately, Mondale turned his attention to 1984. Uh, you know, I always had the idea that in my mind that I might run for president if times were right. You couldn't grow up under Hubert Humphrey without having a little of that in you. And uh, supporting Carter and seeing him get elected and thinking about when he stepped down, maybe I'll run with my background, I'd have a shot at it. And so when 1980 was over, I started thinking about running for president. Mm -hmm. Was it clear to you from the start that that process would run through Iowa and that Iowa would be Oh, yes. You you can't think about running for president today without going through Iowa. Mondale was definitely the Democratic frontrunner in 1984, but his prospects beyond that were uncertain. After four years of Reagan, being associated with the Carter era was not a great claim to fame. Also, bear in mind, I was carrying a big load there because we'd been around, I'd been around a long time. The four years of Carter had been controversial to the voters of Iowa and around the country. Um, I was closely identified with Carter, and that, that's what I wanted to be. But it was, it was difficult for me to get a renewed individual persona, mm-hmm. uh, to break free from all the criticisms of our years in the White House. You know, Beyond that, Mondale was the embodiment of an American political era and a type of Democratic politician that was rapidly falling out of favor. Mondale was an unapologetic liberal, a guy who believed, who still believes, the federal government is a positive force for social change. He served in the Senate throughout the 1960s and 70s, casting votes creating Medicare and Medicaid, expanding federal poverty and education programs, and guaranteeing civil rights. But after the social tumult of the 60s, after Vietnam, After the energy crisis and late 70s stagflation, that kind of government activism was viewed as suspect. Reagan, remember, told Americans in his inaugural address that... In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Mondale essentially sat at the hinge of the liberal democratic politics of the 1960s and the centrist democratic politics 
of the 1990s, and he got pinched. But maybe that's getting ahead of the story a little bit. Mondale led the Iowa caucus campaign virtually wire to wire. The news on caucus night was that Mondale's first place finish and 49% share of the delegates met expectations, while Gary Hart overperformed and John Glenn fell apart. Hart beat Mondale eight days later in New Hampshire, but otherwise Mondale cruised to the nomination. In November, he carried his home state of Minnesota, while Ronald Reagan won the rest of the states on the way to an easy re-election. The best stories I got from Mondale were about his experiences on the Iowa campaign trail and his view on what it takes to be a candidate for the presidency of the United States. We used to have what we call a platform index. That is, we look at my platform when I was standing up there speaking, and if I was alone, we weren't doing well. (laughs) If politicians started showing up, uh, we'd give it a count, figure out how close we were to victory. And um, that, uh, during the early primaries, primary, it was really uh, uh, precinct caucuses. It was really you were all alone up there. And then the, the this is a refreshingly honest view of campaigning. Running for president often means being alone in a crowd. I'm thinking about my own experiences following Rick Santorum on a trip through southern Iowa in 2011, when literally five people were showing up at his events. And I'll never forget one night on the trail with Michelle Bachman in 2011. She had just done a cable TV hit, which, by the way, is as isolating an experience as you can have. You sit all alone in a cold and dark TV studio and talk out loud to a voice only audible in your ear, with just the vaguest inkling that thousands, if not millions of people are out there somewhere watching and listening. Anyway, Bachman had just finished one of those TV hits. It was late in the evening, past dark, We were out at Iowa Public Television Studios in the Des Moines suburbs, and she was walking back through the lobby to the car to go back to her hotel. Someone, I don't know if it was a studio employee or a campaign staffer or what, asked her in this earnestly chipper voice how she was doing. And she just said, I'm tired. We used to say, uh, give me the card. And the card would say, your name is Walter Mondale, and you're in Oskaloosa, Iowa. And the guy sitting next to you is the former governor of the state or something like that. So then before you'd speak, you'd, you could take that car out and remember you're so tired and punchy that you needed something like that. That reminded me of another story I'd heard about Mondale. This one, again, from Dave Nagel, who is the Iowa Democratic Party chairman throughout the 84 campaign cycle. Yet I can't say enough nice things about Fritz. I traveled. Fritz is Mondale's nickname. I traveled with Fritz around the state in 82, and you know, that process keep everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Fritz and I did six district conventions uh, that day, because uh, at that time there were six congressional districts. You know, we started, I don't well, Let's pause here a second to reflect on how crazy this is. Six congressional district conventions means they literally went from one end of the state to the other, from the Missouri River to the Mississippi, probably about 475 miles on the highway. And they made six stops and gave six speeches along the way. You know, we started, I don't remember where we started, out in western Iowa someplace, ended up in Dubuque. Uh-huh. Wow. God, what a grueling trip that was. You know, in you don't one think, day? In one day. You don't think it is, but you get off and give six speeches. 
I mean, you're just, I walked up to a lady at the Dubuque and introduced myself, and she said, yeah, I know, I'm your sister. <laughs> I mean, that's how foggy you get. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> Stuck out my hand, and said, I'm Dave Nagel. She said, yeah, I know, I'm your sister. <laughs> oh, Kathy. <laughs> no, but yeah, it was Kathy, I think. I don't remember which one. I think it was Kathy. <laughs> I asked Mondale about this to yeah, see if he remembered that, one, that trip. That was probably the he didn't recall it specifically, but he got a kick out of it. And it was his sister. <laughs> that could happen, because you're almost blind with fatigue, you know. Yeah. I bet you she was impressed by that one. <laughs> the most revelatory thing Mondale told me, one of the most revelatory things I've gotten from any interview with a candidate, was about what it's like to stand up there and tell a crowd of people why they should vote for you. It came up as he was telling me about how the tide turned toward Carter in the battle against Kennedy in 1980. Uh, it was about two weeks out, as I recall. You could see it in the crowds. Yeah. They started showing up. You, you know, people, people when they, even when they're sitting listening to you, kind of talk back to you. You can... If you look at them, you, if they're not buying what you're saying, they're nice about it. There's something about the way they carry their body or something tells you, uh, you better say something else. So uh, by, by this time, you could see the body music was very positive. Mm -hmm. And something had snapped in the Kennedy campaign, and you could, you could see that. So it's, it's nothing sort of... Tangible. You just very, very, mis very mysterious and intangible, and yet very uh, palpable. Mm -hmm. You knew what was happening. Even Yepsen knew what was happening. <laughs> this, to me, sort of cuts to the heart of presidential politics. The basis on which we choose our leaders isn't exactly tangible, and maybe it's not even rational. It's not really a question of whether we agree with an agenda but whether we like the person, whether we trust them. And you can tell by the feeling in a room whether a candidate is winning on that score. And there again is one of the caucuses yeah, virtues. And, and, and listen, if that's what the American people are thinking, you will really feel it in those caucuses. And you won't get the feeling through some kind of uh, screening process. It'll be someone right there talking to you about it. Mm -hmm. And that's the great strength of the Iowa caucuses. You get it personally and directly, unfiltered. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving it right there. I'm Jason Noble, and this is Three Tickets, the Des Moines Register's podcast of Iowa caucuses history and culture. There's not too much to add to this episode. David Yepsen no longer teaches in Southern Illinois. The famous GOP straw poll in Ames ended with the 2011 vote. Before we end, I want to make sure I thank everyone who helped us with this episode of Three Tickets. Thank you first and foremost to Katie Aiken, the producer of this episode. Thank you also to Rachel Stassenberger, politics editor at the Des Moines Register, Paige Windsor, our news director, and Carol Hunter, the paper's executive editor. Thanks much, and I'll see you again soon.